Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. Happy to be with you this week for the final episode in our series on a total return, and that is total return tax advantages. The unique tax advantages that real estate provides uh, the ability to depreciate an appreciating asset, uh, for example, uh, the ability to uh, take different kinds of depreciation, uh, a 1031, all of those make a multifamily investment even more attractive. And what we want to talk about this week is maximizing those tax advantages or, and this is what I'm really going to advocate for, optimizing those tax advantages as part of a more balanced return. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. And I have an announcement about our upcoming webinar on the Recovery 2021. Uh, it had been scheduled for uh, Wednesday the 31st. We have had to uh, reschedule that. We had a conflict arise. And so same time, but a different date. And it's going to be Wednesday, April 14th. So just two weeks later. So if you have not registered yet, you still have time to go in and do that. And as with all of our webinars, even if you aren't sure if you're going to be able to make that specific time, I encourage you go ahead and register. And then uh, even if you don't attend, you'll get the session materials as well as a copy of the recording, and you'll get that faster than we get it uh, put up on the website. And how you register is you go to marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com, to the Learning Center and the webinar section. And if you scroll down, you'll see webinars you can register for. Uh, we've got some member-only webinars you'll see there. Those are for our, our fund members. And if you're interested in those and joining the fund, happy to talk to you about that. But you'll also see uh, our, our publicly available webinars. And this one is titled The Recovery 2021. All right. So with that, let's, let's get into talking about tax advantages. This is one of the most interesting topics when we talk about real estate investing because it is unique. It's, it's not the same tax treatment you get when you invest in uh, equities, large cap stocks, small caps, or, or in a bond uh, investment or an annuity or something along those lines. Um, and with all the other elements that are in the total return, which as a quick reminder are security, stability, income generation or cash flow, uh, wealth creation or equity growth, taxes can be either maximized, meaning it can be the priority in the way you desire to structure an investment, or, and this is what I'm going to advocate for on this session, is it can be optimized. Now, for all the others, I've not really taken a position. I've explained how we manage it at Mara Polling, but it's completely appropriate if you want to maximize cash or maximize equity growth, or if you want to maximize security and stability. Those, those all make a lot of sense. Um, I'll talk about how to maximize uh, tax advantages, and I'm going to advocate that you instead look to uh, either optimize all the returns or to maximize one component but not taxes. 
um, and I'll explain uh, why as we go through it. Okay, so let's let's talk a little about the things that you do when you are addressing tax advantages. What are the tax advantages? So one of them I referenced in the intro, and that is real estate is in general an appreciating asset that we get to depreciate, meaning it's an asset that goes up in value over time. It's not always the case, but generally speaking, it goes up in value over time, and yet we get to depreciate the asset as though it's depreciating, as though it's not going up in value. Now, is that a smart thing for us to do? Is that a good decision for us as a society to make? That's not what today's session is about, right? This just happens to be one of those areas where uh, collectively we've all decided through our representatives that it's one of the ways the government can support the development of all the infrastructure that the country needs to operate. And in here, we're talking about housing. Uh, and so one of the ways to do that is to allow for this depreciation uh, write-off. So what that means is we can buy a property for $10 million, and let's say that the land value is identified as 20%. So $2 million of that is land, and $8 million is uh, improvements, right? So the foundation, the structure of the building, the roof, the carpets, the appliances, the light bulbs, all the different stuff that makes it up. And we can write that off over time. And we can do that several different ways. We can write it off on a straight line basis. So if I take 8 million, work on my trusty calculator here, and I divide it by 27 and a half years, we got about $290,000 a year in depreciation. So every year on that $10 million property, I get to write off $290,000, which ultimately helps me protect a certain amount of cash flow or profits I have from other investments uh, that I have. And a lot of this has to do with whether you're going to be an active investor or passive, right? So if you're investing with us or with another sponsor, you're most likely a passive investor. If you're building your own portfolio, you're an active investor. It's possible to have a little bit of both in each of those. So that's a good conversation to have with your tax person, which I'm remiss if I don't mention that you should absolutely uh, discuss any ideas you come away from this with, with your tax advisor. And if you don't have one and you do your own taxes, good for you. I did that for many, many years. Go get a tax advisor. They don't have to do your taxes, but get somebody you can at least talk to about taxes because any advice you get from someone like me on a podcast, on a YouTube video or whatever doesn't mean anything because none of us understand your particular financial situation relative to taxes. And you need to talk to somebody that can help you as you think through all of those things. So you can take that straight line depreciation or you could take that uh, that $8 million and you could do something called cost segregation. And that breaks it down into some items that are on a five-year depreciation schedule and some that are on a seven and some that are on 15 and some that are on 27 and a half. In our experience, that can put as much as 40 or even 50% of the depreciation in the first five years. So let's say that it's 40%. That would be $3.2 million 
in the first five years, that's $640,000 a year, not two hundred ninety. dollars So it's more than double. And the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that's currently in place, and I say that because with any tax item that we're talking about, we're talking about it based on current tax law. Um, it could change in the future, and this in particular is one that I'd say is more likely to change than some of the other items, for example, like 1031s and step-up and basis. I think it's more likely that this acceleration provision could conceivably uh, go away or get changed, modified in some way. But if you can accelerate that, then that would mean you could have over $3 million in write-off in that very first year. Now, does that make sense? Had a great conversation with one of my uh, clients this week about, well, wouldn't you always want to take the largest amount of depreciation possible? It depends. And again, it really is a function of your personal situation and what makes uh, the most sense for you. So if you want to maximize your tax advantages, this is one of the areas you're going to really look at diligently and in a lot of detail. If you're simply looking to have a balanced return, then you'd want to take a couple of things in mind when you're looking at these depreciation decisions. And that has to do with depreciation recapture. When you sell a property and do not execute a sale exchange, a Starker exchange, a 1031 exchange, whatever you want to call it, when you execute a sale and simply take the proceeds, you have to pay back the tax on that depreciation that you took. And you can pay it back at a couple different rates. One of those is a favorable rate, right? It's a, it's a depreciation recapture rate that is more favorable than ordinary income. And others are taken actually at ordinary income. So depending upon what you use those losses for, um, you may be coming out even, right? So if you use them to protect ordinary income and you pay ordinary income, not a big deal. You got to pay the tax later. That's a real benefit. If you protected ordinary income but get to pay it back at, an, at a favorable rate, well, then you even make some money on that deal. And so you'd want to take some of that into account in terms of how aggressive you were on using cost segregation and accelerating that depreciation into the very uh, first year or into those first uh, five years. And again, your tax specialist is going to be able to help you with that. Um, next, um, doing value add work. Value add work grows the value of a property by allowing us to increase rents because we've made improvements that tenants find valuable and they'll pay for, right? Whether it's improved interiors or the addition of some amenities or whatever it might happen to be. And when that happens, our net operating income goes up. And because our net operating income goes up, the value in the property goes up. And that's going to create gain for us. So there's kind of two sides to the value-add coin. One is we've got gain we need to deal with. Using a 1031, I can defer the tax on that gain. So that's one of the potential uh, tools I have, one of the tax advantages. And if I'm going to be uh, more aggressive, I may want to do a series of 1031s. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But I want to go back to the value-add piece. The capital that's invested for value-add 
gets to be written off. It gets to depreci- be depreciated as well because you're buying new capital items, right? So you'd be buying new appliances uh, or buying new flooring or whatever it might happen to be uh, or other materials for amenities. Uh, and those are items that can now be depreciated. So your depreciable base in the example I just gave where we had an $8 million depreciable base. If I put a million dollars in the property, now I've got another million dollars that I can write off. So I get some tax savings in terms of some write-offs. And then I've got some opportunities in terms of what I want to do with 1031s. Now, you've basically got, um, you have a whole host of options when it comes time to exit a property. The two general ones I would say that everybody really looks to is I simply sell the asset and I cash out and I take my proceeds and I pay my taxes. And if I don't want to do that, I execute a 1031 and I roll those gains over into a new asset. Now, if I'm going to take the proceeds, I'm going to have to pay that depreciation recapture. I'm going to pay on that depreciation that I had taken. If I didn't use all those losses, then I've got some losses to carry forward that will help offset that, right? So I don't have to pay for losses I didn't use. But if I used losses somewhere for something, I've got to pay that back. So the benefit you get here is you're paying that back when you sell the asset. So if you hold an asset for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, you're not paying that uh, recapture until you exit the asset. Uh, same on gain, right? If there's gain on the asset because you bought it at 10 million and you're selling it at 13 million, then that gain gets deferred until you, until it's time to sell that asset and you actually take that gain. Now, if you want to do a 1031, and I'm talking about a complete 1031, not a partial. This is where you'd roll all of the gain uh, over. Uh, So you'd sell that $13 million property and go buy a $15 million property, and you'd put all the proceeds that you received from the sale of that $13 million into the new asset. And when you do that, you get to defer all that tax exposure into the next deal. And it has some effect on depreciation for the next deal and so on. But because it's a larger property, generally speaking, uh, the depreciation impact isn't going to be uh, significant. You're still going to have a very nice depreciation schedule to, uh, to work with. Uh, but more importantly, by deferring that tax, in the example I just gave, you could be looking at three, four, five million dollars, depending upon what you did with depreciation. In tax exposure, you could have a payment. Let's just say it's a million dollars in taxes that you'd have to pay. Well, by doing a 1031, you get to keep that million dollars. It's invested in that new property, which means it's throwing off cash, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100,000 dollars a year, and it's growing in value so that by the time you sell that property, that million is now a million and a half. You still have to pay the million dollars when you eventually sell, but it's farther down the line. That's a way that you can really optimize tax advantages. If you really want to go the maximum strategy, then you're going to want to build a chain of 1031s. And, and this can be uh, appropriate in many instances, um, but I'm getting to that place where I'm going to say I, I don't think you should push it too far. Um, when you build a chain of 1031s, you're going to take an initial investment and it's going to grow in value and you're going to roll it into a 1031. And then when that asset gets to a place that you have, um, 
lazy equity and it's time for some new depreciation write-offs, you're going to do that again. So every five to seven years, you do that. Well, as you do that, you're continuing to roll tax burden into the next asset. Now, you're getting all those benefits along the way. What you're doing, though, is you're also creating a scenario where the asset that you own has such a reduced basis relative to the value of the asset that if you were to decide at that point in time that you were going to sell, you'd really have to do some tax planning around where you're going to get the funds to be able to do that uh, because you're going to have a big tax bill, right? Because you, you've just pushed it out and pushed it out and pushed it out. And uh, and this is the potential risk you have if that's the strategy you're going to play, especially if you're doing this work, um, building your own portfolio. Um, you could get caught in a situation where you're doing a 1031 and you simply cannot find an asset that's of the appropriate quality to roll into. And then you're potentially in a scenario where you're going to buy a inferior asset relative to your strategy when it really makes more sense to simply pay the tax. Um, again, you're paying tax that is due all along the way. If you have been doing the 1031s, you've been getting financial benefit from those taxes. Hopefully, you've been doing something with those. If it's going into the assets, then the money is in the asset to pay for it. If it's been going somewhere else, well, then you've got it somewhere else to be able to do that. But it's something I always encourage folks to think about. When you're going to build a series of 1031s, you need to have a long-term plan for what you're going to do. And the answer to that that can make that make sense is the step-up in basis provision that exists inside a state law. So uh, depending upon how you hold title to assets and how you structure your estate, it is possible that when you pass assets that you uh, leave to your heirs, the basis for those assets for tax purposes is treated as the basis as of the day that they were transferred to them, as of the day of your passing. So if you have an asset that is a $20 million property, and because of 1031s, you have a basis of only $4 million in it, so there's a $16 million tax uh, exposure, tax liability that, you know, turns out to be, what is that, four or five million dollars maybe, um, that could all get wiped out because the basis would move to 20 million. Now, if you're wondering, okay, how do I do that? The second bit of advice, besides go have a tax advisor, is get yourself an estate attorney. At a minimum, you should have some very basic estate uh, pieces in place. And this is true whether you're an accredited investor and you're working with sponsors or whether you're just starting out and you have a very small amount of cash that you're investing. Uh, but things like having a will, especially if you have children, uh, and also having uh, place, uh, items in place around uh, uh, medical treatment and wishes and so on. As your estate grows, you may choose to put a trust in place. That may be a vehicle that makes sense for you from a tax standpoint. Uh, and all of those are things that you'll be able to decide when you have an attorney, uh, a tax, uh, pardon me, a trust attorney helping you. Um, so if you're going to go pedal to the metal that I want to max, I, all I care about is taxes. Yeah, I want cash. Yes, I want equity growth. But I want taxes first and foremost. Then you're going to be looking at assets that are going to grow in value. 
you're going to want to use some of the more aggressive depreciation strategies, so cost segregation and, and probably acceleration. Uh, you're going to want to do value-add work so that you get the additional capital uh, to depreciate as well as significant growth in the value of the asset such that you can then do a 1031. And then every five to seven years, you're going to do a 1031, and you're going to have some kind of strategy so that you don't ever get yourself pinched uh, in terms of having to buy an inferior asset and a long-term exit strategy around a step-up in basis. Can you do that? You absolutely can. What we do, and this is, this is what I advise that fits for the vast majority of folks, is um, we think we should take full advantage of the tax advantages that are available to us and we should never do that at the risk of the other elements. So I would never want to purchase an asset to meet a tax requirement, for example, a 1031 requirement, that would be less secure or less stable than my benchmark, that would generate a lower cash return or a lower equity growth than the benchmarks that I have set simply to get the tax benefit. And again, the logic behind all that is if I'm getting tax benefits along the way, I've either taken those extra dollars and put them back into the property, therefore they're in the property and I'll have access to them when I need them, or I've used them to offset gains elsewhere, meaning I have not paid tax, which has given me cash to do something. Now, if I've just spent that cash, yes, I might be painting myself in a quarter. So again, this is something you really want to have a good, uh, a good strategy uh, about. Even if you don't use a 1031 in perpetuity, let's say you do a couple of 1031s and then you end up paying the tax. Well, yes, you paid the tax, but you paid it years from now, maybe even decades from now. It's going to be at a lower effective cost, not because the rates will be lower, although it's possible they could be, it's possible they could be higher, but you're paying it with future dollars that are worth 80 cents on the dollar compared to today, or 70 or 60, but they're not, it's not dollar for dollar. You're paying it in the future. And most importantly, you've had use of those funds for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And in that time frame, those dollars have been able to drive incremental returns that you wouldn't have had if you would have held an asset, sold it simply outright, and then bought another one, and then sold it simply outright, which is what you do, for example, with stocks, right? You, you buy a stock, if you had the same kind of numbers, if you had $10 million in stock, and it went up to $13 million, when you sold it, you got to pay the tax on all that. So you don't have as much money to roll into the next, so you can't buy $15 million worth of stock. It's simply not available uh, to you in that, uh, in that example. So Taxes are, I think in many ways, sort of the cherry on top. When you're looking at either a total return structure that you want to build for your own portfolio, or you're simply thinking about what it is you want to go find in the marketplace, or you're looking at an offering from a sponsor and you want to sort of score it against all of these things, uh, stability and security, which is what we prioritize, plus cash flow, and equity growth or income generation and wealth creation, whatever term you want to use, those are the pieces 
that really, I think, have the levers you, you can associate with them. You can, you can be very aggressive on the dollar return side, on the cash or equity growth side, and potentially give up some uh, stability or some security in terms of maybe taking on some more risk. You can be very focused on being conservative and, and realize a more modest return on those, on those dollars sides. Um, but then, in our opinion, taxes should be the cherry on top. Right? It's the nice extra thing that we get. It's not the item that drives everything that we do. Um, that, we think, can lead you down a rabbit hole and into a, into a place that may or may not make sense for you. So I hope this series has, has been of value. We don't do these often. Uh, it kind of takes us away from being able to talk about the topics of the day. There's been a lot of interesting stuff that's gone on recently in terms of interest rates and the um, uh, uh, pro- uh, prospects of uh, the reopening happening as COVID vaccinations are increasing, the stimulus money that's in everybody's hands, the talks about the uh, investment of uh, several trillion dollars in infrastructure that is uh, in the process of starting to be debated in Washington. Lots of good stuff to go on, and we're eager to get back uh, to those topics. Uh, as I said, if you want to hear about the recovery uh, and what at least our crystal ball says right now and what we're hearing uh, and planning for uh, for the balance of 21 and into 22, uh, join us on the 14th. Go register at marapolling.com, the recovery 2021. Uh, we will eventually have that material available on the website, but the best way to get access to it is to either participate live or to register so that you can get the, uh, the material sent to you. Uh, more, more promptly. And with that, I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you next time on another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Marple.